shooting broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So I'm sitting here in 2020 looking around at what appears to be an apocalypse or at least some sort of amalgamation of an apocalypse, but I think we're going to get through this one. It's really the next wave that I'm concerned about. If you follow me on social media, you will know that I am kind of, uh, I don't want to say obsessed, but definitely focused on this idea of a robocalypse, the conjunction of intelligent AI and robots slowly, subtly taking over the human race. I don't know if they're going to enslave us, but I think we are on going to be very close to the precipice of Terminator 2 Judgment Day very soon. So there is one person who I wanted to go to who I think would be able to, if not talk me off the ledge, at least be able to discuss this in an intelligent way and one that is good for all of us as we prepare for the inevitable robot incursion. And that is Dr. David Gunkel from Northern Illinois University, my alma mater. Got to go there. Got to go to where I started to really find out where robots started or or where they're going. Uh, Depends on where that conversation is going to go. So I am very excited about this. I don't know where it's going to go. I got lots of notes. I got lots of directions. So we're just going to get right into this with Professor David Gunkel. Thank you so much for being on the show today. All right, let's get the important stuff out of the way straight away. Do you like David Gunkel? Do you like Davey? Do you like Davey G? Do you like D. Gunk? What is it you want to go by? Uh, Professor Gunkel's fine. I guess that's easy. Professor Gunkel, you got it. So let's get some let's get some of your bona fides out of the way here. I found some strange musical connections. I want you to tell me if some of the stuff is accurate or not. There's a Milwaukee DJ of the same name. Any relation? Yes. It, really? What, what's the relation? Uh, it's me. <laughs> tell, tell me about this. Well, it was, it was college radio, right? So yeah. uh, when I was uh, an undergrad, I did uh, radio shows in. Uh, Milwaukee area and in Madison, where I eventually got my my bachelor's degree. Oh, that's great! So, were you replaced by a robot? Is that kind of where you sent, were sent down this path, or did you just? Yeah, this is way before any of the robot stuff. So, uh, no, it was just. Uh, in fact, we didn't even have CDs in those days. That's how old it was. All vinyl at that time. Vinyl wasn't cool yet. It was just the only way to get music. <laughs> Right. Hipsters hadn't embraced it quite in the same way. Uh, so if that's true, then I'm guessing this next one's going to be true. Did you have a band called Too Much Education? Yes. That is you? And you had it, you, you put out an album and you recorded at the Sawmill Studios in Chicago, right? Muse did there. I love, I love Muse. They're a great band. Was that true? Yeah. So it's true. Yes. So how would you describe your music? Uh, so we were sort of like a post punk kind of thing. I, I had another band in Milwaukee called the Boneheads, which was a little more, uh, hardcore punk and, and that sort of vein. And then Too Much Education was a little more uh, uh, like television or some of that post-punk stuff that was a little uh, less quick, but uh, still had the same edge to it. Sure, sure. I mean, were you going like full Mohawk? Did you have that going on? What, what, how would you describe your no, hairstyle back then? No, we, we 
so we pulled off a very Joy Division sort of look, you know, sort of <laughs> like, like janitors. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, that was very popular at the time. You know, and it's funny to bring it back to what we're talking about. There's AI that's creating original music. So, um, I mean, right. this is all of our uh, – everything's, you know, it's all coming full circle here. Now, one last question here. You're the managing editor and co-founder of the International Journal Journal of Zizek. Am I saying that correctly? It's Zizek. Zizek. It's a sort of soft, soft Z. Okay. It's got the little carrot above it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what? what is that? This sounds like some communist stuff here. Are you a traitor to the States? Yeah, of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Zizek, as you may know, is a uh, Slovenian uh, philosopher and cultural theorist. He is prolific in the sort of extreme. He puts out a book, I think, every week, uh, if I keep track of things. He, he writes a lot. More than Stephen um, King? I mean, that's, I thought Stephen King yeah, was amazing. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite, it's quite impressive. Um, and he sort of does <laughs> a mashup of, uh, Lacan and Hegel, right? Okay. So it's this weird sort of like, uh, communist psychoanalytic kind of, uh, thinking. And he's been really popular. Um, and so we thought, oh, what is this now? This is in 2006. So yeah, 14 years ago. We thought um, it would be interesting to launch a venue that would be dedicated to bringing together people who were interested in his work and were talking about it and developing it and uh, create a sort of space for the misfit toys of the world to come together and talk about this stuff uh, you know, in, in some sort of formal way. Sure, sure. Are you on an FBI watch list for this or is, have you managed to avoid that? That's a good question. I think I'm probably on the watch list for something way earlier in my career, but uh, <laughs> right. it's, it's possible. You work with too much education in the boneheads, I believe, probably put you first jumped on their radar with that one. Uh, so, so, so you've, you've got quite an eclectic background, uh, when it comes to, you know, just, just, just your experience. How would you describe your current area of study, at least from an academic standpoint? Yeah, I'd say from an academic standpoint, my current area of focus is on the philosophy of technology with a special focus uh, really on the ethics of emerging technologies. And that has to do with robotics, AI, algorithms, data science, those sorts of things. That's great. I mean, so I have been following the advancements of robots and AI on my Twitter feed, at Daniel J. Glenn. And I, I got to tell you, I'm captivated kind of in the same way that a person is frozen in fear as they watch a tsunami bearing down on them, as I watch the convergence between robotics and AI, you know, because it, it seems like it's something you can't avoid. It's beautiful, but you also know it'll be the end of everything that you know. At least that's my personal opinion. I know you take kind of a softer stance on that. Um, what do you think about this, you know, just from a general standpoint? We'll obviously get into some specifics, but what do you think about the general idea this, you know, that AI robotics are converging and in just in incredible advancements in a way that we have never seen in human history? Yeah, so I would say that we are living through a period of time in which the acceleration of technological change seems to be at a breakneck pace that we've not seen previously. Um, whether that is actually true or not, I think, is uh, open to some debate because there are periods of time in human history, uh, for example, with the Industrial Re Revolution, where the industrialization process was an incredible change for the majority of the Earth's population, um, especially in the global north. Uh, that really altered life as we know it. So I do think there is something to say that does say, yeah, this is a rapid change. Is it the most rapid we've ever seen? I don't know if I can answer that question, but I do know that we are seeing transformations um, 
in our in our lifetime, right? This is not something that we can uh, say, well, you know, 50, 100 years from now, it'll be a little bit different. It's different next week yeah. <laughs> yeah. because of some new uh, piece of technology, some new system that is available to us. And I think, you know, I see it in just the generations of students I've dealt with as they've come through the university and over time have, you know, had to confront these changes. And I think for educators, this is a real challenge because we don't quite know the jobs that are going to be there for them 10 years from now. We don't quite know the world they're going to inhabit a decade from now. And so we're trying, I think, as, uh, you know, teachers and scholars to figure out how do we train a generation of students for a future that we might not be able to entirely predict from this point uh, in time right now. And that, I think, is both uh, very exhilarating and very dynamic, but it also can be rather scary because uh, you, you don't have a lot to go on uh, that you can just sort of relax and say, well, yeah, I know what it's going to be like for you guys, and here's here I can just tell you this is, this is what you're going to encounter when you get out in the real world. A lot of times we don't know what they're going to encounter when they get out in the real world. It can be very different from what we anticipate from this uh, period of time. No, for sure. I mean, even, you know, you know, my journey from, you know, from college to the real world, I didn't know what to expect. And even though the things you're prepared for, you're not really, you know, the things you think are important aren't important. I mean, there's so many different you know, preparing students, I think, is very, very tricky, and that's the kind of the job that you're in. And and I think, especially when it comes to robotics, there's some incredible advancements that I think are affecting us right now. Because obviously, at this exact moment, we're in a pretty strange period of change and uh, and chaos. You know, I mean, the pandemic. We're going to get to this, you know, later on. But just the number of technologies that are emerging just from the pandemic alone that are kind of taking, you know, jobs away from other people. And maybe taking jobs away isn't the correct word, but at least they're replacing human beings temporarily, possibly permanently, and positions that allow us to keep the distance we need to survive a pandemic. And and these are the types of unpredictable world events, I think, that are kind of pushing this robotic thing along. Now, you wrote this, uh, I don't know if I'd call it, a, a mini novella is probably not the correct word, but uh, How to Survive a Robot Invasion. This is obviously one of many books that you wrote, but uh, but that you've written, but I really enjoyed this because you, you kind of tackle some really interesting ideas of ethics, like should robots have rights? You know, wh- when does a robot have, you know, moral compass? When should they be, you know, kind of held responsible for things that a robot does? These are really kind of, interesting ideas that I don't think I've seen explored, but I want to kind of talk about your vision of the future, because I've seen in some interviews, you've got kind of a light vision. You're not really so much into that Terminator or Battlestar Galactica, Blade Runner-y type of dystopia. You think that we're going to end up living, this robot invasion will kind of be subtle, they'll kind of be subtly assimilated into our culture, or at least incorporated in certain areas. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but tell me if that's kind of accurate. It's accurate to this point. I think the vision we have of the robot incursion that we have from our science fiction literature and film is this kind of external force that comes with, you know, this violence that is visited upon us. And it either comes from outer space in Battlestar Galactica or it comes from the lab, you know, with the Frankenstein monster or yeah. other things like Terminator. Um, and so it is a vision of a kind of catastrophic apocalypse. And that makes for great fiction, right? It makes for really good movies with a lot of oh, yeah. chase scenes and right. a lot of lasers and a lot of guns. A lot of and sequels. A lot of, you know, <laughs> yeah, a lot of sequels, a lot of stuff blowing up. Yeah, and yeah. So that's really exciting to, to use as visual material. I think the actual robot invasion is going to be much less dramatic 
but I think it will be much more uh, impactful um, than that vision we get from Hollywood. And I think the robot invasion is going to occur more like the fall of Rome. So if you know anything about your Roman history, uh, Rome fell not because the barbarians picked up spears and weapons and you know stormed the gates of Rome. Rome fell because the Romans let the barbarians into their empire. They'd conquered so many other peoples, and they needed to bring immigrants into their fold in order for their administrations to run and for their army to operate, etc. So they sort of slowly let the barbarians into their world and let them take over things that the Romans had previously been doing. And then one day the Romans all woke up and said, damn, where'd all the barbarians come from? Because they were everywhere. <laughs> right. And this is sort of a caricature of it, but I think that's sure. kind of how the, how the robot invasion is going to happen. We are going to bring these conveniences into our world with things like this little smartphone device, right? Right. Or the Alexa that sits in the corner or the self-driving automobile, the self-driving vacuum cleaner, the self-driving lawnmower. And we're going to have all these new conveniences that are going to just be irresistible for us. And one day we're going to wake up and say to ourselves, where did all the robots come from? And it's because we would have invited them in. So I think the incursion is going to be a, a slow and steady thing that we almost don't perceive because we think it's just sort of normal and it's just part of life. But it will tip the scales at some point and will have irreversible effects on how we think of our society, how we think of ourselves, and how we think of the communities to which we belong. I think that that I mean I think that's incredibly accurate. I, however, and we'll get to this later on, so I'm, I'm going to build a case here that I want to see how, how you feel about it. But I think that the results will probably still be something pretty close to Terminator or Blade Runner, although it won't be the invasion you're talking about. I think you're exactly right. I think it'll be like this subtle uh, kind of incorporation of these robots and AI into our world to make it easier. But I think the end result may be Skynet. I think I think a self-aware computer is possible. You know, we'll talk about that in a second. One thing I wanted to really mention that there are a couple of really, really cool parts of your book. And one of the things, I didn't know this, but you make this interesting point that robots didn't actually come from R&D. It wasn't a company who designed and said, hey, this is a good idea. It came from science fiction, like directly, because you have this great quote from a guy named John Jordan. No technology has ever been so widely described and explored before its commercial introduction. That's kind of weird. That's kind of a mind bender given all that we know about robots. It is. And roboticists fight this all the time. On the one hand, they use examples from fiction to explain to their students, to lay audiences, to uh, regulators, what robots are. And in the next sentence, they'll say, but don't look at fiction because that'll give you a wrong idea about what a robot is. And it's because of this tension in the field of robotics itself, where the robot as this figure of fiction is irresistible on the one hand, because it really... Um, is in touch with the etymology of the word. The word robota in Czech means worker or you know laborer, um, and that's where Karl Čapek, who invented the word robot, uh, got it in the 1920s. Um, and so that etymology is inescapable. At the same time, though, the real-world roboticists are very strict about trying to get people to think outside the box of fiction. But that's very difficult to do because the robot's already in the box of fiction. And that's where it came from. <laughs> right, right. No, I think, I think that that's really true. And I think that, you know, 
it's it's funny when you start look. I mean, because I think it's impossible to really for modern society to look at robots without looking at fiction. Uh, obviously, because where they came, but it's also where it's most explored. And you know, what my other show, the kind of idea is is how much our current technology is inspired by fictional technology. You know, we mm-hmm. dream, we make our dreams in movies and television, and then people try to make that in real life. That's kind of how you know a lot of people get inspired. That's why they go into scientific work. So I, you know, I don't want to get too hyperbolic here, but I'm going to look at the Terminator stamp franchise as a way to kind of obviously that's an extreme, but in my personal opinion, I don't know that we're that far off. And I'll give you a couple of reasons here. When you start looking at the robot industry and the AI industry as it stands right now, you know, we've got people who are creating incredible human speech generators. AI and machine learning is getting to the point where it is getting better at humans at very specific tax, tasks. You know, we've got robot. We're inviting robots into our home. We're controlling our home. Uh, you know, you've got this powerful Internet of Things where even sm- little sm- your microwave and your toaster are talking to your lights, and you can control them with a central AI. They're all in the cloud, and they're all learning. And I think that we're really approaching a point where AI is going to have. S- you know, in kind of a Westworldy way, you could have a central AI that is built on all of these little robots, these little, these little specific AIs, all learning at a machine learning pace. You know, you've got, you know, normally when you machine learn, you gotta take an AI and run it through several different millions of cycles. Well, if this is all in parallel, let's say you sell, you know, the same toaster to everyone in the world, and that toaster's learning when you have coffee or whatever. It's creating this database and uploading it into this general AI. I could see a point where you do have have a central location that has incredible power over what humans do. I mean, I could see that happening. I would go even extremer okay, and great. say we're already there. All right. We're at that moment. What is Facebook? What is social media except a giant data collection funnel sucking up all this data from the human population of Earth in an effort to predict human behavior in order to control what it is we do, what we want? what we purchase, and how we live. We think of Facebook and all the other social media companies as being a social media platform where we get to share things with our friends. Facebook and the social media platforms don't think of themselves as being in the social media business. For them, that is just a way of getting data. They're in the AI business, right? They're basically warehousing massive amounts of data in order to train their AIs in order to be better at predicting and controlling human behavior. And I think it's not a science fiction scenario for even a decade from now. I think we're already on the cusp of that with regards to the way that data is being uh, managed and collected and mined um, through all these applications. I mean, when we get like an app, whether it be TikTok, whether it be Animal Crossing, whatever the case is, when you read that terms of service, they're telling you what they're going to do with your data, right? <laughs> yeah. And we never read the terms of service, but it's clear that what they're doing is they are warehousing and mining that data for all kinds of purposes on the back end that aren't necessarily visible to us 
in the user interface of the social media platform. No, I agree. And I got to tell you, I'm one of the boneheads, not the bonehead. You're the one of the boneheads, but I am a bonehead who actually does go through the terms of service and looks. And sometimes I am like, I'm shocked at what you agree to in, in those things. It, it can't be legal. You know, I like that you said that because I thought we were going to be on different sides here. And I thought we were going to, I was going to have to convince you of a couple of things, but at least I think you're probably open to a couple of, of strange ideas that I have. And this one I think is really key that no one really talks about a lot. And that is this idea of emergent properties. We see this a lot in, you know, one, one, one of my, uh, my, my colleagues on my other podcast. Um, we talk about his, his area of expertise is foam. And so a bubble, right, is like a membrane with air inside. And a bubble has very specific properties. You know, two bubbles together doesn't really do anything. When you have five bubbles, now you've got foam. And foam has very, very different properties that are more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. There's a great experiment. Sidney Fox did this great experiment uh, in the 60s where he took, you know, essentially um, the basics, the the basic building blocks of life, but just the chemicals. He heated and cooled it. I'm really boiling this, no pun intended, boiling this experiment down to the basics. But in the end, he created what are called microspheres, these little spheres that acted alive but were not alive but could asexually reproduce, and they're kind of like proto-molecules. Right. So I think you see where I'm going with this. I could see a point where AI becomes so advanced that an emergent property of a sufficiently advanced AI would be something akin to consciousness. Would you agree with that? So let's put the consciousness question to the side for one second. I would say, again, this emergent properties idea, I think we're already there with a lot of the machine learning and uh, the uh, basic uh, neural network technologies go. So, for example, um, DeepMind has this thing called AlphaGo, right? And AlphaGo plays Go. And it beat Lee Sedol from South Korea, one of the most celebrated players uh, of the game in, in human history, and uh, became the champion Go player in the world. Well, normally when we think about computer programming and about creating AIs, uh, the usual way of thinking about them in terms of some symbolic reasoning, or what's also called good old-fashioned AI, is that the programmer tells the computer what to do, gives it step-by-step instructions. First you do this, then you do this, then you do this, so that the engineers and the designers always know what the program is going to do once it's set in motion and can always go back and retrofit and re-engineer or correct problems. When you have a machine learning algorithm like AlphaGo, which is based on neural networks that are then trained uh, either with supervised learning, unsupervised learning, or re- reinforcement learning. And in the case of AlphaGo, is a combination of all those things uh, going on. It does things that the engineers do not know or can predict. So when the engineers were asked, how did AlphaGo make these amazing moves in his, his, its See, game look, against... Look what you're Lee, already doing. Yeah, you're already, exactly. yeah, yeah. And its game against Lee Seydol, uh, the engineers just sort of threw up their hands and said, well... I don't know. It's an emergent property. It it learned this from the data. It it extracted this from chugging through all the data on which the algorithm was trained. Now, that's a very narrow activity, playing the game of Go. And generalizing that beyond Go to a larger sort of generalized consciousness, I think, is the next big hurdle in developing AI technology. And all the people that are working on artificial general intelligence are trying to move from this very narrow application 
to a much more general application using the same kind of emergent properties approach uh, with machine learning and other uh, related technologies like that. Well, I do, you know, one of the things in your book that you mentioned with AlphaGo, which I found fascinating, was that there was a specific move, I think you label the move, it's like game four, move 36 or something like that, where no, everyone's... Yeah, I think it's game, I think it's game two, but uh, yeah, I, I don't remember but, all that. <laughs> no, it's okay, I was going to be very impressed. But it, it was a very specific move that everyone watching thought it was a mistake. It was so off the wall crazy that no one really understood it. And it turns out that that particular strange crazy move was the key to the, to the computer winning that game, which shows that it is now making moves that even human beings couldn't predict or make and pushing it forward. So in a sense, its game ability has evolved beyond what humans are capable of, or at the very least is pushing that envelope. And I think this is what's, this is what's so incredible because I think, you know, to bring it back to, to fiction again, Westworld, you know, it's no spoilers for the, for the latest season, but one of the things I think that's key to those hurdles that you're talking about is creating a central AI database, right? Like a gigantic AI that can, that is pulling the AlphaGo information, that's pulling you know your toasters information, or you know I, I was reading about um a, there's a a robotic dog that is that is the idea behind the dog is to, to replace you know biological dogs, and it learns your behaviors, it learns your face, and that's all uploaded to a cloud, right? If there was a general AI that was able to pull all of these very specific AIs and, you know, cumulatively sort through it all and act, and act upon it, now you've got that general knowledge that you're talking about if it's also able to learn from all that and make predictions you know, in a general sense. Right. And so this is the difference in the, in the science and engineering practice of AI between what is called narrow AI and artificial general intelligence. Mm. And so we have lots of narrow AI. We have AI that can answer questions in the Siri application. We have AI that can play Go. We have AI that can drive automobiles. We have, you know, very narrow, specifically tailored applications. The general AI or AGI as it's called is the goal of AI from the beginning, which is to simulate human intelligence of a general sort in a non-natural artifact in a machine. And that seems to be a very elusive uh, goal. It's one of the things that every now and again, uh, just kind of like the end of the world, every now and again, someone will say, it's going to be next week. It's going to be a year from now. And it's like, oh, no, uh, 10 years from now. And so right. it, it keeps it, that goal keeps getting pushed off into the future yeah. as we learn more and develop more. Um, in the process, though, we create all these, this entire army of narrow AIs that are networked together and able to work together. So what you might get, and this is just a hypothesis, but what you might get isn't artificial general intelligence, but what you might get is a general distribution of narrow artificial intelligences all talking to each other and all doing their one specific thing really well, but interacting and networking and collaborating uh, through the cloud. And that seems entirely likely. Now, so, and I agree with you. I think that's probably the most likely scenario. So do you think, you know, from, from your professional standpoint, do you think it is, you know, you, you set the consciousness part aside for a second. I want to just kind of pull that back into frame for a little bit. Do you think it is possible for an AI to become self-aware and operate on a level that is extraordinarily independent of human uh, interaction or input? Yeah, so here, this is, this is where this question gets really interesting because when you try to define consciousness, 
we find that we don't even have a good definition of consciousness for ourselves. True, yeah. And so we say self-aware, we say able to use language, we say able to explain uh, decision-making, whatever the case is. Um, part of what we're learning with the efforts in artificial general intelligence are ways of defining these terms that have sort of eluded us um, so that there's a real practical outcome to trying to push this envelope because it's giving us the opportunity to think more inventively or you know, more uh, rigorously about the way we define these terms for ourselves. And, you know, even animals in that case, animal consciousness is something that also is very difficult to define um, when you start to you know, get into the literature on it. So whether or not consciousness is possible or not is not just a problem with the technology. It's a problem with the concept of consciousness itself. And that these two things, I think, are evolving simultaneously. And there may be a point at which we redefine consciousness well enough that a machine can fit the, de the definition, right? And I think that's kind of what the tensions are at this moment in time. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense because I was actually just reading an article about how um, crows are self-aware, right? Like like a yeah. bird is able – it knows what it knows. And I think if you're, if you look at biology, you can kind of rough, roughly look at biology. At least this is how, you know, how, um, taxonomy works is you've got highly evolved creatures and lower evolved creatures on this, on the scale. And I think, you know, a hundred years ago, we didn't think that, you know, animals even could register the world around them. <laughs> so, you know, we, right. we, it kind of gave us an excuse to treat them poorly. I think with more with more experiments and with more research, we'll find out that that idea, at least a general idea of consciousness, actually goes further back on the evolutionary scale than we believe. I mean, I think you could even have you know things like worms, which you know have uh, they're 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 a, a crux in in evolution. I think you could find some of them are self aware, at least are aware of their surroundings more than we think. And even animals like the octopus. I was just talking about the camouflage of the octopus, just the brain power oh, yeah. that goes into it replicating its surroundings is astronomical to me. So I think that that's very true. But I'm, the point I'm making is that from a biological standpoint, I think our term will become more loose. But at least from an AI standpoint, uh, maybe not true consciousness in like a spiritual, I guess, term or whatever, whatever, you know, whatever the, I don't know what the, what the word would be, ethics, psychology. Um, but I think you could, could you find a point at which AI you know, is kind of big enough. Let's, if you were to picture it like a snowball going down a hill, is there a point at which you no longer need to push the snowball and the snowball will go down the hill on its own? Meaning that this AI will operate independently, uh, maybe not have a conscious, maybe not know it's a robot, but be able to work and do several things without human input. Yeah, I think that's pretty, uh, right now, in fact, this, Elements of that are accessible, right? We have machines that can build other machines. Right, okay, yeah. Right, so, you know, we don't need even the human being in the process of generating the next uh, iteration of a particular uh, artifact. So, yeah, I don't see that as being out of the question. Uh, what that will look like, obviously, I, I'm not prepared to even begin to guess, sure. but I, I think I see the puzzle pieces on the table, and fitting them together is going to be the, the the big task. But I think we got a lot of the puzzle pieces already there before us that we can see this thing starting to take shape. No, I think so. I think that that is really – I mean I think really the question that people, especially listening to this, uh, I know it's definitely a question that I've thought of, is what are the ramifications if – 
AI were to become self-aware and at least make decisions for itself, right? So just today, and this is a perfect example, I kind of want to get your thoughts on this. Just today I read an article about AI-powered deepfakes. And so it's this technology called Generated Adversarial Network. Uh, you, you can explain this better than I can probably. But in, in a nutshell, one part of the program will create a human face digitally. Another part will criticize it until the first part gets it right. Sounds probably like a lot of people's upbringings, I'm sure. But, but you know, <laughs> there's even a website that you can go. It's called, you know, this person does not exist.com. And you can go scroll through human faces that this AI generated out of whole cloth that I mean that's crazy to me if you were to it's some of these kind of emerging technologies where if you were to pair that with a self-aware AI no matter what its intentions were that's where things can get very scary actually I'm more afraid of when human dictators and wannabe dictators get access to this technology and can utilize it to alter our understanding of representational photographs and video and make people say things they never said, make documents that never really took place. Um, I'm, I, I would say I'm less worried about the machines and way more worried about human beings right now. <laughs> no, that's fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, especially with what's going on here. Um, no, I think that that's very true. But it just it's one of these things where, you know, at least human beings, we have a long history predicting human behavior. And even the most unpredictable of humans, to some degree, we can kind of predict their behavior. But when you start adding robots and AI, uh, you know, the way an AI computes the world around them is very different. It may appear similar to the way the human mind or the human brain works in some cases, but it's very, very different. So when I think about these highly advanced AIs doing things like that, it's kind of curious. Like, for example, I mentioned the music thing, right? Where you have AI kind of generating music, you know, out of, out of, you know, kind of out of, out of its programming. That music is so different than what a human being would create because it doesn't go through the same process. And I, I, it's these types of things, these almost very dangerous things in human hands, they're dangerous. You know, in an unpredictable robot's hand or AI hands, that's where things kind of, you know, where my mind kind of wanders, you know. Right. And so this difference you, you mentioned that, you know, we do things one way and the algorithm does things another way. Um, I think a really good example of this is how computers and algorithms work with language. Yeah. When we use language, it is ostensibly so that we can express our thoughts to one another and we, we put together sentences that have what we call meaning and we hope to convey our meaning to another person. Yes. <laughs> when Alexa or another uh, speech dialogue system or digital assistant like that uh, composes a answer to a question that you submit to it, it doesn't understand the question, right? That's not part of what the program does. Yeah, yeah. What it does is it's parsing the words that you feed it and then running through all the statistical models it has <laughs> for how words can be rearranged yeah, yeah. to supply an outcome. Yeah. So that its way of working with language is on a very material statistical basis. What word occurs more often with this other word in, you know, the available literature that I have access to in my data? So even though it gives us a response that we can understand, the device didn't process the question the same way you would or the same way I would. And so we have to understand if we create an artificial general intelligence, it's going to be an alien intelligence. It's going to be an intelligence that's very different from our intelligence. Right. 
and that we, in effect, we're going to be dealing with an alien species. Um, and that I think is a really interesting way of thinking about this sort of human robot interaction that these are not, um, representations or images of us, right? We're not creating robots that are just another kind of, uh, humanoid thing in silicon or humanoid thing in bronze or in chrome, but we are creating a, a kind of alien and dealing with that alien is going to require us on our side to accommodate a lot of things with regards to our expectations, our social interactions, and you know our methods of judging and evaluating what these uh, devices and objects mean to us. No, I think that there's a couple, two things I wanted to mention because I think in the book you talk about, I think it's called the Chinese box theory, uh, and it's kind yeah. of this, you know, this... Um, uh, what do you call it? like a thought experiment? And I'm gonna see if I can, somebody get the broad strokes correct. You have a box and you've got a, a native English speaker in the box. He's alone in the box, but he's got a pile of Chinese characters in a bucket, let's say. He's got a book that basically says how, you know, when this character is put in, put out this character like that. A person will, you know, the input would be someone, you know, let's say this is a Chinese native speaker would put in a character in one end. He would get it inside the box, look in his book, and then find out which character he needs to stick out to the other end, and then it comes out. If Even if the answer in Chinese, the question in Chinese is answered in Chinese, the person inside the box does not has any concept of Chinese as a language. I mean, uh, Mandarin, I guess, is the, is the language, but doesn't have any concept of Mandarin. That, I think, is, is a great example using humans to really explain how algorithms work. Did I miss any broad strokes on that? No, it's right. It's from John Searle, an American philosopher, and it is his way of making a distinction between really doing something, like understanding a language, yeah. and simulating the understanding yeah. of the language, which is what the Chinese room or the Chinese box does. What's interesting about the thought experiment, though, is even though we can say that the guy in the box doesn't understand Chinese – the box appears to understand Chinese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so from the perspective of yeah. the individual interacting with the box, he or she thinks that the box is speaking Chinese. Yeah. And that relates to, I think, the phenomenological experience that we have in the face of these robots that perform all these incredible feats, maybe not doing it the way we would do it, maybe not understanding the language that is fed into them, but providing understandable output that we judge as being cognizant and rational and intelligent, right? right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it is such an interesting way to think about everything. And, and I want to mention, you said, you know, humans in silicone. Kind of along that line, uh, we've got to go blue here for a second. Um, because on, you know, on my other programs, I, I have been bombarded with the advances. I, I am, I am convinced that when it comes to robots and, and AI appearing as human as possible, the cutting edge field is going to be sex robots. And I think we're oh, yeah. seeing it a lot because they are, I would guess the reason for this is, is because they are, it is a requirement of the robot to imitate human intimacy. And I think intimacy we could say is the defining characteristic of being human. So it needs to replicate something that is entirely and completely human because robots don't even need to reproduce except they build each other. They don't, you know, make each other <laughs> biologically. And, and I think that this is really incredible because a couple of statistics here, you know, I was just reading that in 2020, maybe this is the pandemic talking, but more men and women are likely to consider a sex with a robot than they were, you know, two or three years ago. This is kind of 
people willing to replace human intimacy with a robot is not something to be overlooked, I don't think. And how do you see this kind of, um, where do you see this going in the future? Yeah, so I have some colleagues that work on this exclusively. Like this is their this is their thing, right? Um, like in their personal been, life, or you mean like professionally? No, 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 in their professional life. Yeah. Okay, all right, just making sure. I, I don't know if they've done any field research. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but you know, there has been remarkable improvements in synthetic skin, in uh, physiology, in motors and servos. Um, you know, with facial expressions and and body movement that has pushed this field in a you know very real direction where people are now considering these things uh, not as a science fiction um, sort of possibility but as, as a very real possibility I think we already see this happening uh, with regards to the way that people have fallen in love with chatbots right I mean people will have amorous relationships with what is ostensibly a AI algorithm resting in the cloud somewhere that will spit back to them sort of amorous, you know, messages. And uh, there was a very famous case, a guy named Robert Epstein, who at one time was uh, the editor of Psychology Today. And after going through a, a really messy d- divorce, he started chatting up a, a person he thought was a Russian uh, girl online. And they, you know, fell in love and had an amorous relationship. And about three months later, he realizes that he's chatting up a chatbot the entire time, right? <laughs> this happened with, I think, the first chatbot in 1966. So, like, from the advent yes. of chatbots, yeah. this has been yeah, going so on, right? I mean, that's what's scary. When, when Joseph Weizenbaum built Eliza, um, he reports that uh, some of the people who chatted with Eliza asked that he leave the room so they could chat in private. <laughs> I mean, but that that tells you how advanced this stuff was at the beginning, or at the very least, it explains how willing human beings are to accept that. You know, how uh, kind of you know, we, you know we called it in entertainment to um, uh, the suspension of disbelief, right? So you, you right. to suspend disbelief that this is not a human, that it's a robot, and you're kind of like, yeah, it's fine, it's it's okay, you know, and move forward with strictly human emotions. That's kind of crazy. Well, and so so much of the intimate relationship, I think it can be, you know, located up here and not down here, right? So there's a lot that goes on right. up in the head and that you can simulate. And you were pointing to your groin for those listening at home, yes. right? That's, Sorry yeah, about that's that. Okay. I, yeah, that's okay. I, we're, it's okay. Audio, some, audio only. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, you know, a lot that goes on with words, a lot that goes on with, you know, sort of very emotive sort of uh, phrasing, right? that can really fire up various thoughts in, in people's experience. And the chatbot can easily manipulate that in the same way that, you know, another human being can. And I think the sex robot is just a chatbot jammed inside a, you know, a, a robot body uh, that allows for more of that kind of experience, bringing more senses into the, uh, you know, into the interaction. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, on top of that, I was reading about um, there's an AI, a robot in AI that can mimic human actions after watching it just once. And for people listening, I'm going to put all these these the links to all these on the website. This I mean, that is pretty incredible. If you think about that, if you can teach a robot like that, you know, to do what you want it to do. That can combine wirelessly. Now that gets uploaded to a cloud. And let's say you want a new sex bot model. You bring it home. You just download all the previously learned experiences in it. And now you've got, you know, you, you have a robot that can do whatever you want it to do. Uh, I, I mean, I think that this, 
I don't want to say it's disruptive of human interactions, but I think in a lot of ways it's very telling of a society that is so accepting of that. Um, what do you think that that says about either society or human nature in general? Yeah, so before I get to that question, I want to point out we have to recognize also that when that happens, there will be a third person in the room who we may not recognize as being there. And that third person is going to be the corporation that owns the cloud data. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. so yeah. the interactions that you will have with the sex robot will yeah. be uploaded as your preferences to the cloud so that they can better <laughs> supply services to you in the future. So right. you have to really you know, think about what's happening now with like Facebook and it remembering everything you've ever said or done. Now your sex robot and its parent company is going to be warehousing the data in terms of your intimate relationships with the sex robot, um, ostensibly to give you better service in the future. But also it will be revealing to this third party a whole lot of things that uh, for many of us, I think from this perspective in time, would say is absolutely off limits in private information. But I do think there's something about us as human beings that just click I agree on that terms of service and don't like you read it because we want the thing. We want the experience. We want the technology. And so I make my students every semester read the terms of service for their favorite application. And they hate <laughs> because they yeah. learn like you you have that there's things in the terms of service that they would never agree to. Yeah. But I think the way that that, you know, contract is set up to be unreadable to begin with, its length makes it, you know, really cumbersome. And the technology companies, I think, are really betting on the fact that we're just going to want to use the app and not read the terms of service. And you can pretty much surmise that the same will be true for any of these intimate technologies um, where we will want to just have the experience and click, a, I agree, on the terms of service and have this third party engaging in our intimate relationship with the object. No, and I think that that's very true. I mean, human beings are interesting like that. We've become so used to getting what we want, we're okay giving up certain things, which includes some of your rights. Like you want, I want the app now. I'll agree to have them collect all my data. You know, we do it with legislation as well. I mean, you you pass a big bill, and people tack on all the kind of stuff that they want because they know, oh well, people want this. People want stimulus money, so they don't care if we fund this pet project, right? Like this happens. Right. This is part of human nature. You know, we, to 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 kind of. Give people what they want in exchange for something that they want, but they're not, they don't know that they've given up. Um, I do want to mention, you know, it's funny, <laughs> you mentioned the third person in the room. I'm sure everyone listening has had the experience where you've talked about something. Let's say you've talked about a chair or a desk and all of a sudden on your Instagram feed and Facebook, the ads for that, you know, that, that desk are coming up in there and they say that they don't listen. And I've heard podcasts where they explain how the algorithm works. I don't believe it for a second. And so I think it would be funny if you, they've uploaded your sex bot preferences and you say you want, Oh, I want a leather belt. And it's like, Oh, you're into leather. Hey, or try the BDSM, you know, download or whatever. Like I could completely see that happening in, in the future, which is, I didn't, think about that but th that is you know kind of a weird scenario um so i want to talk about before you know we, we I, I, I want to talk about how you kind of see the future being let me say it like this i think the pandemic is pushing along let's say robot replacement 
robot mm-hmm. human replacement in a way that I think was was much slower beforehand. Some examples that I've been following since March are Flippy, the burger flipping robot that's in a lot of fast food places, White Castle in particular. There's bartender robots. There's even robot surgeons who are able to do simple sutures, robot sanitizers who clean kind of like a Dalek from Doctor Who that goes in and cleans right. the cleans the, the hospital. You know, you got COVID test administrators. They've got robot fans at, at Korean base Baseball games, um, you know, there there's obviously a demand for sex robots. There's even uh, robot delivery people being tested. Where do you see all of this going? How do you see this kind of assimilation of robots affecting the future? And do you agree with me that it is probably happening at a pace that is both destructive and very, very fast? Right. So we had been before the pandemic in a period of time where automation was really heating up and corporations were investing large sums of money in robotic systems uh, for warehouses, for delivery, for driving. Um, uh, one of the first places you see a lot of autonomous, autonomous vehicles is in farming because you don't have to worry about pedestrians. And so a lot of agricultural work. And, and so we, we saw an incursion of a lot of these machines uh, into various forms of employment and, uh, you know, displacing human workers in the process. I think you're right, though. The pandemic has put a flame under this that uh, really made things move much quicker. And that's because we recognize that the usual interactions with human beings, which we took for granted, became not just something that was maybe expensive, uh, with regards to the way the corporation was thinking about it, but became a matter of personal safety. And so that if you were able to replace human workers uh, with robots, you would then also be ensuring some safety measures for your your human workforce or for your customer. And I can't imagine that after the pandemic, this is going to just go back to normal. I think there's going to be a real... Uh, sort of prototyping period where these things are sort of tested in various uh, parts of the economy. And after the pandemic, people will say, yeah, that worked out really well. What else can we do? Where else can we put these things? And I can only imagine that the future of you know employment is going to be way more interesting or complicated, depending on how you look at it, uh, due to this automation or this you know, bringing of, of the robots into uh, various uh, fields. Well, I think it really – and I know you're not an economist, but I'm curious what you think. Because as we bring more robots into the workforce and start replacing human workers, there comes a point where that system just won't be sustainable, right? I mean you need right. people to be able to buy things. If they don't have a job, they don't have money to buy the things you've automated because you you just replaced their job with your robot. And and there has to be I understand both sides of that equation. I understand businesses wanting to make more profit and I understand people wanting to work. You know, I do understand both sides, but I imagine there has to be an optimal number where you can have a certain number of jobs automated 
but also a workforce that is that that is around and, and is employing enough people to, to you know to to run a nation, right? You still have to pay taxes and everything, right? And I think this is right. probably most prevalent in like trucking, for example. You know, trucking is a very important. Uh, a very important industry. It's all run by humans. But if you automate that and you put th- hundreds of thousands of truckers out of work, that's devastating to the economy. So where do you see this optimal number coming? Where do you, where do you see the future of this being? Yeah, so this, this uh, scenario that you uh, mentioned is a really great anecdote uh, from the industrial era in mm-hmm. which Henry Ford is taking the uh, union chief on a tour of Ford's new factory. And he's pointing out all the new uh, machines that have come in that can uh, do things better than human workers. And uh, Henry Ford sort of smugly says to the union worker, so what are you going to do now, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> We've got the machines, and, and, and machines don't strike. Yeah, right. And, and the u- union boss says back, he says, yeah, but who's going to buy those cars? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and, that's and, exactly and right. This, and this is the question. You yeah. can have this incredible efficiency pr- creating all these consumer goods, but unless you have a set of consumers who have employment and money and right. disposable income that they can spend on those items, it doesn't do a whole lot of good you know, to have that available to you. So one of the answers to this question is the answer that Andrew Yang was talking about on the campaign trail, and that is universal basic income. This idea that people would be compensated for either not having full employment or underemployment, but would still have available to them the funds to participate in the economy, especially if your economy is driven by services and consumer uh, products. Uh, That's one solution. Another solution is that, as we've seen in the past, when jobs are lost due to automation, new jobs are created. So again, an example from the industrial era, we brought in the steam engine, which replaced a lot of human muscle labor, mm-hmm. but then we needed people to tend to the machines, right? To feed the locomotive, to maintain the steam engine, to uh, you know obtain the materials, to fuel these devices, etc. Uh, and so, one of the other arguments is: yes, it's not really a replacement of human labor; it is a displacement. That as human beings lose opportunity in one well-established field of employment, new fields open up that we hadn't yet thought about. Now, I don't know how well either of these things are going to work out. As we've seen already, the UBI had some traction, but you know, experiments that have been done with UBI on large scale haven't been very successful. Small-scale experiments have actually worked out pretty well. Right. Um, but whether you can roll this out nationwide in, in a place like the United States is still, I think, a very open question. Whether there are going to be new jobs created by this current round of automation, again, I think the economists don't have an answer to that question. Some economists say the pattern is going to be the same. It's going to look just like industrialization, just with different tools and technologies. Other economists say, no, it's going to be different this time around. And I will say you know, they do have a point because what's being automated this period of time aren't the dull, dirty, dangerous jobs that robots used to do. What's being automated are the intelligence jobs, are the, you know, are the information jobs. So if your job involves operating a computer all day, chances are you can automate that task. 
So we're talking about things like writing news stories for publication in magazines and newspapers. We're talking about creating music. We're talking about, you know, doing a very basic legal brief generation. We're doing, you know, some even scientific writing, um, you know. So we're talking about things that we typically didn't think of as being something that could be automated. And so the economists that think that it's going to be different this time around point to that as a um, benchmark that says, you know, something will be different um, in this go around. Well, I would say that those economists are boners because people want to people want to write music. That's the thing people want to do, Correct. right? Like you're talking about automating things that that people actually enjoy doing, right? I'm sure you could automatically automatically generate this podcast, but then what am I going to do, right? You know right. What I mean, like that's right. what I like doing. I enjoy doing that. I don't want to see a robot take my podcasting job. Get out of here, robots! And and so uh, you know, I I I understand what he's saying, and I get that, but. You know, like, for example, you know, Flippy, who's flipping burgers in a, in a burger place, right? Like that, you know, you can make an argument that encourages people to get better jobs, but what if they're unskilled? You know, there are lots of arguments, and I know that that's not really your area of expertise, but I don't know that that argument is going to fly. And the other one, which is kind of interesting, is universal basic income. It would be like, you know, this is a general statement, but it would kind of be like the human race has kind of made it. And so the robots are doing all the work and generating all the money, and then they're paying us to just kind of keep an eye on them. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like yeah. from like a, a fiction standpoint, that's kind of how it works, right? People are humans are sitting at home collecting checks for not doing anything while the robots are doing all the work. This is the kind of stuff that robot uprisings are made of, the Professor Gunkel. So I don't know if that's that's the best answer either. So I, you know, I think we tackled a lot of things. We didn't quite get to robot rights or even uh, robot moral obligations, but you're going to stick around for ten minutes to talk about that, right? Correct. Oh, that's going to be, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so, uh, we didn't tackle the robot AI question. Um, I know I kind of thought you were going to talk me off a ledge here, but I'm still convinced that we may be facing a robocalypse sometime in the future. Um, but at least your book makes it really understandable. Uh, so the first, it's called How to Survive a, a Robot Invasion, correct? Correct. And um, so where can people find you if they want to learn more, if they want tips, if some robot's knocking on their door trying to take their job, where can they get in touch with you to find out more? Right. So you can uh, get my information at my website. It's just gunkleweb.com, my last name, web.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at David underline Gunkel, and you can find me there. Um, and you can contact me at my email address, dgunkel at niu.edu, if you can't find something and you got a burning question you need answered. You got it. And I'm going to put all that stuff on the website. So uh, I got to tell you, this is not the conversation I expected, but this was quite an interesting one that probably alleviated more fears than I thought it would. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this show, you got to subscribe. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you're not currently subscribed to any of those, any of those platforms, 
forms, you can find them on the Fascinating Nouns website, which is easy to get to. Fascinatingnouns.com is the address. You can find the subscribe buttons at the bottom. And if you like social media, we got you covered. You can find links to the shows, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, YouTube, all on the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage, along with every previous episode and more info on every guest we have on the show. Fascinatingnouns.com is your destination. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.